Welcome to After the Act, a film podcast where we talk about movies and shows that we've watched. We are your hosts. I am Randy, here with El Cuco. Actually, no, wait, that doesn't sound ominous enough. El Cuco. There it is. And El Cuco. Today, we will be discussing another television show. Much like we did the other week with Ozark, we'll be discussing The Outsider, the HBO miniseries based on the novel uh, by Stephen King. And the, honestly, yeah. Jason Bateman's on a roll. It's 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 the year. It's the age of Bateman. We are in the the Bateman sense. And yeah, I've, we've been trying to talk about this for a while. It's been like I don't know three four months since this came out. It's been a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. We we still remember most parts about the show, so we're going to dive into that. But definitely excited to talk about this because you know getting back to the the horror mystery vibe that Stephen King is obviously well known for and yeah I remember watching the first couple of episodes I was pretty shook so let's just uh well let's start with this I know you've you've read more Stephen King books than I have have you read the the book that this show is based off of uh I actually never read The Outsider okay from what I understand it's it's actually a uh a newer one of his books I've read a lot of his older stuff like The Shining uh, obviously, it, uh, Dreamcatcher, uh, books like that. Um, I even read the first Dark Tower book. I haven't read the rest of the series, but uh, The Outsider is one I have not checked out. But speaking of years, uh, I feel like the last three, four years have been all Stephen King. Yep. Like Stephen King was huge back in the early '90s, early 2000s, and then all of a sudden, you know, you didn't really hear much from him. I know he had a lot of controversy when it came to his IPs. He didn't own a lot of them until recently where he started buying them back. But now I feel like we're seeing a resurgence. Uh, obviously, you know, I love Stephen King. I think he's one of the highest paid uh, horror authors of all time, if not the highest. He definitely is the highest. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. It's just goals. Like you, you see so many of his movies being turned into either films, TV shows or miniseries. Uh, so it's definitely been great seeing all his stuff come back. And for the most part, it's all been pretty great. Uh, it started off with It, the first chapter, which I, I think is phenomenal. Uh, it Chapter 2, I didn't like as much. I uh, actually didn't like it too much at all. Uh, but then he bounced back with this show, The Outsider. And honestly, it's it's a delight. Uh, Jason Bateman, I wasn't expecting to be in something like this. Because uh, I, I can't recall seeing him in anything horror-related until now. At least I don't think. But uh, Ozark's more of a thriller, not really horror. So this was a really interesting way to see Jason Bateman in a different light. Um, and I can say I loved it. Uh, putting Stephen King bias aside, it, it was uh, it was pretty well done. Sure. Yeah, and I think he's been pretty present in people adapting his films for the last few decades. But it definitely felt like 2010s hit a new, uh, hit a new wave with... Uh, I think Carrie came out this past decade, which is fine. Um, the Dog Tower did not do well, but then It came out a few years ago, and that really set it off. And then Gerald's Game, I think, was one of my favorites of the last decade uh, that came oh, out yeah. right on Netflix. But that one was really good. Um, it's a really good psychological thriller set in one place, kind of like a, a Saw-esque, a Green Room-esque vibe, but way more 
uh, subtle than even that. So there's been some really good hits. It, Gerald's Game, I liked 1922. It was fine. Um, but yeah, I was uh, looking forward uh, to... Actually, In the Tall Grass is one I thought was fine. I haven't seen 1922 yet. But yeah, I was looking forward to this one. I love Jason Bateman, and I like a lot of the adaptions and once I found out Bateman was directing the first two episodes, I was like, I, I was already hooked. I know you told me to check it out immediately uh, after you saw it. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I was definitely looking forward to what Bateman could do in a Stephen King universe. And I mean, those first two episodes, it uh, it definitely set the tone. Um, but I guess before we get into spoilers, I'll I'll at least say that I really liked a lot of this uh, miniseries. Um, again, the first two to three episodes shook me to my core. There was at one point where I had to pause the episode, take like a little break, get a snack, some comfort food and stuff, because it was so much like it was a so much tragedy and drama and helplessness in the conflict they create that it really just shook me. Um, and this, the direction Jason Bateman had in those first couple of episodes were just fantastic. Just the emotional beats they put the characters through were overwhelming. I can't fathom anyone trying to process the fucked up Stephen King conflict that he created for the story. Um, I think <clears throat> there were some middle episodes that kind of waned on a little bit too much for me. I feel like it could have been consolidated by maybe one or two less episodes, but the character Holly really carried it through. So even when I felt like this slow burn approach that they were going for was starting to be less burn and just kind of sedated, um, the, the performances in this show were consistently fantastic. So even when things kind of got slow in pacing for me, the characters were really putting on its back. Um, I will say definitely was disappointed with the finale. Um, it, it was just an old, underwhelming uh, conventional ending that that isn't too disfamiliar for Stephen King adaptations or the books themselves. But I will say that penultimate episode was fantastic. So I think overall, I, I would say I like this show. It has a lot of good things to, to get from it. A lot of good character work. Crazy, insane conflicts that I would love. Like, I love to ponder in a horrific way. Like, what would I do in that situation? Mostly just be fucked. And that's really the end of that. But, I mean, the best of Stephen King has that high concept factor to it where it you try to put yourself in a character's position and it just makes you uncomfortable for a really long time. So the show does that really well. So overall, like the show. And um Yeah, and Yeah, go for it. And I'll I'll I mean, I agree with you. That final episode was pretty underwhelming, but I feel like that's consistently a problem with HBO. Like that's just such an HBO thing currently. Yeah, Watchmen. You Game of suffered. Thrones, Watchmen. Exactly. So, you know, I kind of I guess that kind of changed my opinion just a little bit. I agree with you the ending was underwhelming, but I already went into it assuming that that might be the case just because it's an HBO show, uh, which maybe I shouldn't have done, but still I did do it and uh yeah, it was uh it was a little it was a little too vanilla, I guess is the best word I can think of. Uh, but you're right. The first three, I'd say the first four episodes were really just my favorite because I believe episode four was the Holly Gibney um, played by Cynthia Erivo 
or yeah she when she's like starting the investigate the preliminary investigations and she starts like finding out lore about the the main antagonist of the show so i think that's one of my favorites uh but we can cover that in spoiler territory which uh you want to just jump right into it yeah spoilers for the outsider starting now here we go three two one you've been warned and go so yeah holly gibney she does some uh investigation investigatory work um after jason bateman's character terry maitland um, is accused of murdering a small child in this uh, small town. Can't remember where the small town is exactly, but um, he, uh, you know, he is caught on video and has a bunch of forensic evidence accusing him of murdering this small kid. And it's not even just the murder of a small kid; it's like a very grotesque uh, mutilation of a, of the child. And I believe they even allude to the fact that the kid was sodomized to some degree. Yeah, I think with a which, branch, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So that like that's already pretty fucked up. Um just very dark in tone. And so, you know, like any detective would do, uh played by Ben Mendelsohn, um uh, you have Detective Ralph Anderson who's the main character arresting Terry Maitland uh because he has all this forensic evidence against him and a bit of a bias too. Uh because his son, it's revealed to have passed away. And so he has, you know, these uh these biases that he cannot respect a child killer, even though he hasn't been proven to be a child killer yet. Um, so he he goes above and beyond to kind of tarnish Terry Maitland's uh, reputation by arresting him in front of the townspeople at the local baseball game. So that is really the struggle of the Maitland family throughout the show. They have to deal with, uh, you know, the tarnished name of their family and how the townspeople kind of look at them like savages and monsters because of what the husband and, you know, father potentially did. Um, so that's that was an interesting theme throughout, uh, but it's because of all those things that they hire this private investigator played by Cynthia Revo, Holly Gibney, and uh, throughout the the time of her introduction, they uh, they they introduce her as like this weird, quirky kind of detective who has always been seen as someone who isn't normal, but has this uncanny ability to really see things from a unique outside perspective. And that's why she's a private investigator. So she goes and kind of backtraces a lot of the evidence and just the, the previous events that led up to the murder of the small child in this town and uh, finds out that El Cuco, which is a mythical uh, boogeyman of sorts in Latino culture uh, is actually responsible for the murder. And El Cuco has the ability to kind of shape shift and copy the identity of people it has come in contact with by cutting them. And uh, from there, it just kind of goes down this rabbit hole of what the El Cuco's origins are, uh, why he copied Terry Maitland, uh, you know, his identity, and why he needs to, like, feed on children, and, you know, why he feeds on the sorrow and grief that occurs after each murder occurs. It's it's all very, very cool. Um, and I will say... You know, before going any further, first four episodes for sure were my favorite, especially because they ended on the lore building note. But what about you, man? Like you said, you really liked the first three. Uh, did you feel that that episode, that fourth episode, is where it started to get a little bit slow? Yeah. So, yeah, starting with those first, definitely the first couple of episodes. Uh, most of these were written by Richard Price. The first two directed by Jason Bateman, and I think the the pacing issue I started to have is predicated on particularly the first two episodes 
that just have these devastating, heart-wrenching moments of kicks off. A child is murdered and presumably sexually assaulted. And this character, Jason Bateman, and I know they picked Jason Bateman because pretty much I think everyone loves Jason Bateman. So trying to imagine someone you kind of love like Jason Bateman doing this act is like, no, that can't be true. It, it really sinks you into the, I hope that's not true. And what's beautiful is that they continually show evidence, eventually equally on both sides, that conflicts with each other. So the only thing that you know that's true is that this kid was mutilated to death. Um, but there's equal evidence of Jason Bateman doing it and not doing it, which is a bizarre conflict of massive proportions. Like, imagine if you're in the scenario of Jason Bateman and you're accused of this horrific thing. Your life is over um, and a child's life is over. So how can you not feel bad about that as well? But, you know, you didn't do it. But at the same time, you're the cops, you're the parents, you're the family and your kid was murdered in a terrible way. And all you know is that there is some evidence. A lot of it pretty convincingly points to the Jason Bateman character. And how can you not then just want to, him to be crucified in front of everyone? So that's what these first two episodes do beautifully. And it starts off with knowing the child is murdered. And then it ends. One of the ending plot points of episode one is the mother of the kid was murdered due to the emotional devastation she felt after going through funerals and stuff like that, had a heart attack and died as well. So that family lost their son and the mother in the span of this one episode. And that's just terrible. And then it doesn't stop there because <laughs> episode two involves the older brother of that family trying to take revenge against Terry, Jason Bateman's character, and shoots him to death in public and then he is shot pretty much a cop suicide situation to death as well so within two episodes for uh, one episode and a half the youngest son is dead the mother is dead now the older brother is dead and then i think it's that episode where it's either that one or the next one where the father i think commits suicide so that entire family is just gone in horrific ways so the tone was set in those first two episodes where not only are these huge, huge revelations of the family's devastation is going on, but you have this investigation trying to find out what's happening with Jason Bateman. And I think what was it was uh, definitely an emotional moment where you realize, oh, Jason Bateman's dead. That's surprising because you, you would think someone like him would actually stay throughout the season. And I thought it was going to go to this direction of eventually his name was going to be proven innocent or some weird twist. But. They cap them in episode two. And then it's like, well, where do we go from here? Um, and where they go from there is it starts off pretty good. They introduce Holly in episode three. And you just learn about her really weird background of essentially being able to conclude things that are seemingly impossible to conclude just by her like observational skills that seem borderline supernatural it's not really explicitly said it's supernatural but her essentially heightened observation skills are pretty much a superpower and she's fantastic i think for me she's what holds this show together um i think towards the end of season or episode four i think more f episode five six and seven is where i just think there's a lot of slow pacing that i think could have been condensed 
to one less episode. But the best thing about this series is that, yeah, they set the tone fantastically with the first two, three episodes. Uh, but you really like that Holly character, and she's there throughout the rest of the season. So even when the investigation starts to drag on for me, maybe an episode too long, anytime they show Holly, I'm intrigued because she has just this personality that you just want to hear her say more things. Yeah, and she she honestly represents, you know, she 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 represents to a certain degree the audience's the audience, right? Because she'll address certain questions that we may have had and then starts trying to explain them using the evidence that's given. So I did really enjoy her being the, um, not the sightseer, but... Surrogate. Just kind of the, yeah, the surrogate for, for the audience. And uh, I think that was one of the, the best parts for me. Cynthia Arrivo just did a fantastic job of playing this character. Um, and can we also talk about this? I know we said it before in passing. No one films a titty bar scene like Jason Bateman. Like, I Max. know he directed only the first two episodes, but my goodness, that man knows. <laughs> he, I, he must have spent some time in a lot of titty bars because. He just really likes the aesthetic. I don't know why. I don't know why. Like, I, I guess I do. But it's the surprising Ozark and both in The Outsider. It just has so many scenes in a strip club. You know, maybe that just represents society. Like, that's that's a normal setting for when shit goes down. <laughs> strip clubs. They also had like a phenomenal soundtrack too. Like I was bumping to a lot of those like strip club songs. I was like, "Damn, I gotta know what song that is. <laughs> I gotta gotta play that when I'm working out." True. Or you know, whatever it may be. Titty yeah, boy like Jason, Jason Bateman strikes again. Titty boy, yeah, you're right. Titty boy Jason. That's his new nickname from here on out. Everyone, you've heard it here first. It's gonna catch on. Uh, but yeah, he uh he was capped like you said in the first two episodes, but. For me, the tone was so hopeless. Like, everything was hopelessness yes. in this show. Yes, Which, yeah, exactly. And it works so well for the Stephen King style of writing. Uh, because in the beginning, you're just like, man, the damage is done. Terry Maitland has been killed. His family's reputation ruined. These people are murdering themselves due to, like, sadness and depression. Like, GG, the, the, this creature won. Like, the, the only thing we're hoping for is, like, a modicum of silver lining towards the end. Um, and I think that's where the problem begins to arise with the show towards the end because I absolutely love how it begins. I love the lore it builds. Uh, but then when they start getting further into actually finding out the creature, well, like the creature's origins, where he's hiding, you know, what the mechanism is for him feasting and having to feed and copy someone else's identity. Uh, it starts to become a little, it, it almost feels like a different show at times, right? Because the tone completely changes to like this bleak, dark, hopeless setting, which works really well to, okay, now we're gonna, we know where the creature is. We're going to corner him. Uh, we're going to stop him, kill him, whatever it may be. Um, and it just seemed so weird to me. Like, it was just like, oh, okay, now now there's hope. Like, like the tone is completely different. It's not as, as dark and gloom as I would have. I've become accustomed to seeing. So it just, it, it, it kind of bothered me at the end. Uh, you know, especially the ending where they just kind of corner the creature in a cave and I guess shoot it and then stab it and then bash its head in. Uh, and then there's no real conclusion, right? We don't know anything more about the creature, uh, which some people may like, you know, some people think it's scarier when things aren't given too much of an origin. Uh, but one of the, the things I really liked about this show was how they tied the title into it, 
right? Because at the end, Holly Gibney's character says that one of the things she learned from her father back in the day was that while people may understand other people, only outsiders can understand and, and notice another outsider. So it really got me thinking about what some of the underlying themes of this show may be. And for the most part, a lot of these characters who are humans are very unlikable. And the world they paint in the beginning is very dark and gloomy. So while what the creature did was grotesque, it poses a question to them towards the climax of, of, of the show where it's just like, well, this is my nature. I've always been this way. This is what I do. I don't know anything else. I don't even know if there's others like me, but this is just what I do. So is the outsider the creature or is it the, the people inhabiting the world? Uh, is this creature just eating because it needs to survive? Is it doing it out of some sort of malice, which, you know, it feasts on people's grief. So I would assume, in my opinion, it does. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's true, right? It could just, it's just part of his nature. Uh, so it really gets you thinking like, well, well, who's worse, this creature or these like really shitty people? Uh, was, you know, what was the world already a terrible place before it even showed up? Who knows? Uh, so I did like that little, that little question that it tries to present at the end. Uh, but yeah, the ending definitely felt, not even the ending, I, I want to say like maybe the last three episodes kind of felt a little bit like a different show, just because tonally the mystery disappears. Uh, one of the things that I think really worked for the show was the fact that you didn't see the creature, the creature didn't have a face, it's just kind of like this ominous presence that is constantly lingering. But then once they reveal the creature, they reveal that it looks just like uh, one of the other characters, Jack Hoskins, played by uh, Mark Menchaka. It begins to lose a little bit of its scary factor for me. Um, so yeah, not too impressed with how they dealt with the creature. Uh, I really wish the tone could have been kept a little bit more consistent. Maybe they could have done that by saving the creature for the very end instead of revealing it, I think, by the seventh episode or something like that. Um, sure. But yeah, but yeah. Like, what, what, do you, what, do you, what are your opinions on like that that uh that underlying theme I was talking about. Like, did you get that while watching it? Or did you just like think the creature was just this evil thing that uh, needed to be dealt with? I think the biggest issue I had with that finale episode was that they did say in passing in that final conversation Holly had with the creature, El Cuco, they say some really big conceptual things that I do enjoy. Like the nature of things. Is he more malicious or is he more hurricane? Is he a freak of nature? Is he a part of nature? The problem is that's really the only time they try to tackle that theme in any realistic way. Um, that felt really tacked on the whole question of one's nature and how people's perception of it can be of malice or of regularity based off of how familiar they are with it. Um, of course, Holly was that kind of surrogate outsider character too, where people didn't really understand her and they were against her. But the thing is, if you're going to start bringing up the concept of the creature, not even truly being aware of itself, then you have to explore that concept further. I think you can't really bring that up. And get too much credit for it if you're not then trying to figure out what the origin and nature of the creature actually is 
and what it means for it to exist at all. That's huge questions that, you know, if the season had a season two, which I don't think has been confirmed, it would have, maybe that's something they could tackle, but they just, they could have done a better job maybe at, if you're going to go that route of, oh, Holly feels like her and the creature are similar, then they didn't do the legwork, I felt. I think they needed more time than with the creature, if you're going to go that route, to display maybe its own inability to stop what it's doing. Maybe it has a sense of morality where it's like, you know, I get the feeling that what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm literally driven to do this one thing. Then that would have been very fascinating, the final confrontation of these two different beings. And one of them kind of doesn't want to do what it does anyways, but it it has to to survive. And then it could be a whole survivalist philosophy, which would have been fantastic. But they didn't do that. They just had this really interesting conversation that had no weights because I don't think they they cared to tackle that specific theme. And I think you're right. It did feel like different a different show in the later second half of the season because, yeah, those first two episodes, they set up this hopeless dread and mystery investigation, like like the science of how to prove your innocence when evidence says you're both guilty and innocent. That's fascinating as a plot B. And plot A of just this whole, how does a family survive on both sides? One that lost someone in a terrible fashion. And one family who's been accused of having a family member doing a terrible thing. Those two aspects were the best part uh, are of this series. Um, you see uh, Jason Bateman, uh, Terry's wife, being unable to exist in that city. And she kind of finds her footing at the end and you know, plants her foot and just decides, you know, fuck it. I'll just sue everyone because they fucked all of this up. Um, and I like that. I did like that through line of her plot. And she was a fucking badass. Yeah, exactly. Like the most realistic character in that situation you can feel would exist. It's like, like, what did you do? But eventually just, you know, stand your ground. Um, that was fantastic. Uh, so those elements were good. But at the end, it did turn into like this monster hunt. And the monster itself was then underwhelming because... It's just essentially a person. It dies like a person. And presumably, they were just able to kill it like a person. It has very much the issues that I know we had with It Chapter 2. I won't spoil It Chapter 2 if you haven't seen it. But let's just say the ending was also at least underwhelming for me and how they resolved the situation. And again, that's a classic Stephen King issue that he even makes fun of in It Chapter 2. But this series fell to the same level of victim where they set up something so grand, a conflict that seemed unsurpassable. How can you solve, how can you declare someone innocent when evidence dictates others, other ways? And also, how do you catch something that morphs into other things? That's that's insane. How do we do it? Well, we track it, then shoot it. Oh, all right. Well, I mean, I'll catch season two. <laughs> So time to go home, boys. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's I mean, and again, like same with Watchmen. It's like they set up something in the beginning where you're like, wow, this has incredible, incredible, incredible implications. How do you catch something that changes faces? How do you solve murders where you can't determine if the evidence is reliable? And in the end, it kind of just didn't matter. It just didn't matter at all. So that definitely sours the series. But like we were talking about, at least it has these fantastic characters like Terry's wife who 
like you feel so bad for the children like the children are having nightmares you you can see that's like the metaphorical version of what if these kids lost their father and their father was accused of murdering and sodomizing a boy to death like those kids are going to be fucked up they're going to have nightmares and the show took it in a literal route where the youngest was having a nightmare about the actual creature threatening her but that's something that would happen to a kid in grief they would have these nightmares and the mother will try anything to just to try to convince her it's not true or just to try to relate by having uh the detective's wife kind of befriend her and the family so all that family drama was fantastic, but the monster hunt at the end, yeah, that's where it kind of lost me. I think another part that I think I was really torn on uh, was towards the middle when they start explaining the creature's powers. Uh, Jack Hoskins, again played by Mark Menchaca, he becomes, I guess, the lapdog of El Cuco because he's sent to investigate a barnyard where some of the clothes of Terry Maitland was found. But as he goes to investigate it, he gets, I guess, infected. Uh, they never really explain the, the exact mechanism, but he gets infected by El Cuco and is forced to do his bidding or he will slowly start to, I guess, go insane and have hallucinations and, and just, you know, slowly begin to die. Uh, so he was introduced as kind of a broken character to begin with. Uh, he had a lot of, uh, I guess, evil in his heart or, or sorrow in his life which is why El Cuco chooses it, how it, El Cuco chooses its henchmen. Uh, but I was really torn because a lot of the time I just didn't care for him as a character. Uh, he was just unlikable from the get-go. So even when he had his like little mini redemption arc after he finished, finishes capping like half of the main characters in the penultimate episode, it just, it doesn't do anything for me. He, uh, he just felt kind of shallow the whole time. Maybe that's just me. Let us know in the comment section below. Uh, but I think the only thing I really liked about Jack Hoskins' character was just the tone he set in that penultimate episode where the other characters kind of unite for this final confrontation with the creature. And it, the episode ends with him just like killing uh, the love interest of Holly Gibney, um, played by Derek Cecil, Andy. And then the other lawyer guy dying uh howard and then i believe alec pelly from the show also gets like shot in the head he gets no scoped or he gets scoped and just like you see his brain splatter everywhere out and you're just like holy shit that's like half of the main cast right there they're they just got wrecked (laughs) like a span of like 20 minutes yeah and it like that i really loved uh and it was especially as brutal more brutal for the alec character because even before that he uh has this whole little speech about when he was in Iraq, he would taste, I guess, metal in his mouth. And whenever he got that feeling, he would back off and it would ultimately save his life because if he, you know, looks back and he chose to ignore those feelings, he would have been dead already. And he gets that same feeling before going on this final hunt with the main character because he's compelled to want to help out. And, you know, ultimately he was right. He gets he gets just killed in the most nonchalant anticlimactic way and you just it just really hits home um so that's one thing i liked about the jack hoskins character uh but other than that i think that's when it the tone started to shift for me in the show and i just really didn't care for him but yeah you know let us know for any of you who actually read the book of course i will check out the book at some point um, i don't know if they really explain anything more about okuko or go into any more detail with some of these characters 
Uh, but for me, Jack just wasn't doing it. How about you? Yeah, no, it, that's the exact problem I had with that character too, where they introduce someone who's completely unlikable, literally not a likable thing about him. And they try to, you know, reveal some of his background by El Google taking the image of like his abusive mother. I assume that was his abusive mother. Um, and him struggling to not do terrible things, even though it's at the direction of this person who can literally kick his ass by having him kick his own ass somehow. And it was weird. Um, but yeah, it was hard to feel anything up for him since he already set himself up in the first couple of episodes to just be a fucking asshole. Um, and I really liked the penultimate episode and, you know, part of the finale where, um, yeah, it's surprising. You don't expect these cast of characters you've been with for nine hours to just start dying so fast. And I think ultimately I liked it. Although like retroactively, I am torn on it because when that happens, that means, like to me, when that was happening, while I was like, "Wow, this is like like really bold and really horrific," but then I started feeling kind of empty because I'm like, "What's left for El the actual El Google to do?" Like, I feel like it would have been more fascinating if that moment was spread out in different locations with different dynamics, other than a really good sniper taking out all these people who, for some reason, like when they had opportunities to like run, they would be like. Well, no, actually, we're going to stay here with you. I know I'm just a lawyer with no gun, but I'm also just going to stay here. Some of that didn't really make sense from character choices. But this is a horrific, dreadful show. And most, a lot of the kills at the end came from a guy with a sniper gun. It's not exactly the same tone of these mystery deaths that we've been hearing about throughout Holly's investigation. So I did like it at the time, but it did take away from the threat that I thought was going to be El Cuco going full ham, final transformation type anime stuff, but ultimately being totally ineffective on its own. Like, again, kind of similar to the Pennywise stuff of like, well, they're actually the, you know, the smallest character of, of us all. He has no power when you stand up to him. That's what it kind of felt like. And I was disappointed at that because I expected, I think, something a little bit more sinister for El Google's final stand. Yeah, I wanted this creature who was like eater of children to the tear know, drinker. What a badass name! The exactly. tear drinker, the one who feeds off of grief. All right, all right, tear drinker. Show me how you're going to induce these tears. And even like the whole time, the main character, you know, Detective Anderson, he gets warned time and time again, like, "Oh, if you pursue this case any further, you're gonna die. You're gonna die. Like impending doom." And at no point in the show was he ever really in danger. Um, you know, he was under fire in that penultimate episode, but even when he confronts El Cuco, it's pretty tame. Like, he doesn't really suffer any damage. It's not even that much of a struggle. He just kind of ends it and then, you know, moves on with his life. And, you know, I guess his whole thing was overcoming the death of his son. But even then, like, yeah, I definitely wanted to see more of the creature they were building up through the whole show. Uh, so, yeah, I would, you know, I am always a fan of lore. I would have, uh, I would like to see if they do a season two more about El Cuco, but I was just not a fan of that cliche ending that a lot of horror shows and movies tend to do 
which is where like, oh, you think it's resolved, but in reality, oh, last shot, post credit scene, uh, Holly Gibney has his vision, and that only happens when the creature is still alive and trying to assume your identity. Uh, so, yeah, I was a little disappointed with the ending. That doesn't, you know, I'm not saying the show is terrible. I really did enjoy the show, but just that last, those last, those last three episodes, you know, besides the few things I liked in that penultimate one, um, yeah, just just kind of fell flat to me, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, but I would like to see a continuation of this show, but only if they tackle, uh, you know, more of the lore. Uh, maybe show a little bit more of the creature and why it's a threat. Maybe there's other ones like it in the world, and that can lead into other things. I know Stephen King novels tend to be connected in some way, shape, or form in terms of universe. So it'd be cool if they, you know, expand upon that, maybe dive into that it, that giant universe that Stephen King has created. Uh, but other than that, uh, again, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if the book just ends on the same note which is entirely possible. Uh, but what about you, Matt? Would you like to see a sequel to The Outsider or a season two of some kind? I'm a little torn on that. I feel like I do want to know more about the creature and the lore. They set up, they did set up some really interesting lore when Holly was diving into it and conjuring up all the boogeymans from every culture had the, these common themes. And what if those common themes were because there was an entity that did represent the boogeyman, the El Cucos, all these things. That was interesting. I'm like, all right, that's pretty fascinating. I like that. But the creatures started off with being devastating, wiping out an entire family without actually killing all of them themselves. He just had to kill one person in his family, and they did the rest for him. All right, crazy. How is it going to end? And it's pretty much the opposite. It's the exact opposite of that. Where he just, yeah, it, they set it up like, well, he's he's hungry, like he's weaker when he's hungry. But if you're going to have a climax, it can't be, oh, uh, Thanos is already half dead. Go, Avengers, uh, tackle him. Like, that's not really exciting. I want to see the creature dig deep and figure out a way to be a threat. And with a season two Maybe they could do more of that. The problem is I also had a I had a good time with the investigation of how do you prove innocence. I, I don't want to watch that again. I don't want to say a part two of that. So they would have to do something where it's way more deeper into the lore, into the world of this creature. Um, but I can't think of a I can't really think of a good plot I would want. I don't know what I would want out of a season two other than to discover more about the creature who we thought was already dead. Um, so I, I, I would watch it if there's a season two, I would watch it, but I, I don't really, I'm not really, uh, clamoring for a season two. I think they had a, a pretty good swing at a mini series and you know, the batting average was better than it was worse, I think, but I, I'd, I'd rather just, you know, take the season it's uh warts and all, and you know, I still enjoy a lot of it. I still enjoy my Bateman time. His direction is fantastic. He knows how to shoot grief. Um, even the small characters, like the mother who lost her boy, just watching her break down as she's cleaning up from a wake, you know, it hits, it hits hard because a lot of us have been in that situation where you seem to have your shit together after grieving a loss of a loved one. And then you just break down at the most mundane moment and she starts throwing chairs and food against the wall and you get it, you get it. Her baby boy's dead. So that all of that stuff. All the family drama, the investigations, a lot of that did work for me. 
And while season two could be enticing, um, I'm I'm kind of over it. I'm I'm ready to move on to the inevitable next Stephen King adaptation we're going to try out as a as a country. All right, and that's fair, man. Um, again, like I said, I didn't dislike the show, but uh, definitely the ending affected a few things in terms of my rating. But if I were to rate it, uh, I would currently say I'd give it a solid six to six and a half out of ten. Um, I know it's a little subjective, you know, considering it's horror, it's a mini series. Um, all things considered, you know, did they have enough time to do what they wanted to do to do a proper book adaptation? These are things I really can't answer because I didn't read the book. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe I'll write an article on Malum's page once I read it, kind of comparing the two. That would be fun. So definitely sure. look out for that. But, um, yeah, if I rate it six, six and a half out of ten, uh, in terms of how I rank it against other Stephen King works, uh, I would say out of, you know, the, the things I have read and seen, uh, I thought it was well done. I thought it was a good adaptation. Uh, so I would probably put it in my top five for a lot of Stephen King stuff. Uh, I would say it's number one for sure in terms of TV adaptations sure. because I just did not like those 90s miniseries of It, uh, the Langoliers, stuff like that. Uh, just was not a fan. So this is definitely the best one of the TV adaptations, but in terms of total Stephen King works, um, I just can't rank it above some of the things like that first It chap, that first It movie. Um, you know, The Shining is a classic. I absolutely love The Shining. Even that sequel, Doctor Sleep, was incredible to me. So, um, yeah, Outsider, probably top five overall for Stephen King movies. Uh, definitely number one for show, but overall six, six and a half out of ten. I know it's got a 7.9 on IMDb and an 82 on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty damn good. I just can't go that high with it, uh, but definitely worth a shot to check out. What about you, man? Sure. I think it hits the top 10 and probably what I've seen in a, the lower tier of the top 10, but it, it, it'll, probably crack, uh, it'll probably crack the top 10 there. I think in terms of ratings, I think 6 out of a 10 sounds good. I think I do really, really like 60% of it. And then just like half of that, 40% I don't like comes on the final episode. And then a 20% is a sprinkle throughout the middle of this, of the, of the series. But it's interesting because while, yeah, I'll probably rate it a six out of 10, like those first two episodes, I'd give like a nine out of 10. Um, that's how well, like if any series can evoke something that strong and just dread and grief and curiosity, then there is tremendous talent at the at the helm of the series um so while those two episodes probably get a nine out of ten there's just too much mix of a bad bag uh towards the end for me to give it anything higher than a six but still i enjoyed it and i'll probably watch the next uh king adaptation i'm uh, scrolling through the future work section and it's just it seems pretty endless like <laughs> there's so much work that they're like, at this point, they're just picking short stories, too. And just like, you know what? Fuck it. We'll make a movie out of it. Like, In the Tall Grass, I think it's called. I think that was just like a short from either him or her son. And they just made a full 90-minute movie out of it. So this definitely won't be the end of the the King adaptations. This will probably still feel like only beginning. Um, but, you know, we already live in scary times as it is. So who knows? Maybe they'll take a break on that. <laughs> I do. It's funny you say that, too, because I remember reading an article recently where you know, given all the pandemic stuff, Stephen King was just like, yeah, I'm sorry that you guys live in one of my books right now. 
my bad. Uh, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny because, you know, it is you know, very, very bleak times, you know. But uh, that's why we do this so you guys can uh, find comfort in our awesome movie and video reviews. Yeah. Our awesome voices. You're welcome. You know what? Actually, uh, like COVID, the key is contact. Uh, El Cuco, the key is contact. They want to do a season two. They can try to squeeze a lot of the conflict out of what we're going with COVID-19. Maybe it's uh, El Cuco 2021. Yeah, you know, who knows? I know we got Death Hornets coming soon. Who knows what's next on the queue for God? Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. But um, I would say, uh, just to pose the question to you, man, again, you know, we've got a lot of Stephen King works. He's been doing this for a really long time. Uh, a lot of short films, a lot of miniseries. I personally, my favorite work of his that isn't very good but still a guilty pleasure of mine is Children of the Corn. Um, that yeah, original too. pet, yeah, that original Pet Cemetery uh, from the '80s was really frightening to me, especially the little boy, the actor who played the little boy, absolutely terrifying. Wasn't a huge fan of the remake, but um, yeah, in terms of your opinion, uh, what's your favorite King work that you've seen thus far? And which one would you like to be, would you like to be like remade? Which one would you like to see be remade? Mine is definitely Children of the Corn. I think there's something really creepy about a bunch of kids in Gatling uh, killing all the adults and worshiping some weird demon who calls himself he who walks behind the rose. None of those movies are very good because they were based on a short story. But I feel like nowadays they could do a good job with it. But what about you? Yep, I think we probably said this in the It Chapter 2 review, not to go back and see, but I agree with the which one I would want to see readapted, Children of the Corn. I am surprised, I am actually shook that that hasn't been done already. We've had so many readaptations of Friday the 13th, The Nightmares on Elm Street, we're getting more Halloween movies. I am shocked Child's Play finally just got a reboot, so it has a new universe so I am shocked that Children of the Corn isn't up there as well. Um, and I do think there's a lot of material in there to make it a really good one. So that's the one I would want to see uh, adapted again. Besides that one, maybe I'm sure you could do a different version of Misery. Maybe flip the gender roles. There's a lot to be said in these days about gender norms in society. Where that would be interesting if the crazy person wasn't a woman. It's actually the dude. Um, or something along that line. So I think Misery could uh, could probably thrive off of a modern director. Um, favorite work? That is a tough one. But I'm going to go more modern. I mentioned this before, but Gerald's Game. Um, a lot of it is, I think it's just an underrated movie, or at least an under-talked about movie. I think they did a really good job at just setting a character in a single setting. How can one escape? If you're tied to a bed, that's all I'll really say about the movie, but you're tied to a bed. Now, how do you escape? Um, There's no one there to help you. And I felt like this, that thrill of how do you get out of that situation and not just die from starvation or dehydration or anything like that, or all the other uh, conflicts that show up for that character. But at the same time, they, you know, they do tackle these really heavy themes of abuse and getting over that. And there's, Plenty of horror movies that use the horror conflict as a metaphor for some sort of abuse and getting over it. That's the beauty of horror. It uses a surrogate for those feelings. But I think Gerald's Game is one that's not talked about enough. So I would say Gerald's Game, favorite uh, adaptation. That's fair. And let us know what you guys think in the comments section, uh, all you little dirty birdies out there. 
Uh, what's your favorite Stephen King work, and uh, which one would you like to be? Would you like to see being remade? And uh, what's your rating of The Outsider? Uh, but other than that, man, uh, any closing thoughts before we plug it out? Yeah, you know, HBO, you have a lot of great work. I would just say find that closer, guys. <laughs> just find that closer. Learn to finish. We got to finish strong. We got to finish. I know finishing is hard. We've all been there. Sometimes you don't finish at all. It's okay. But, you know, I'm in these, uh, you know, sometimes dark and gruesome times. It is fun to have the privilege to be able to explore some of these TV shows and movies that we haven't quite seen. So look out for more of that. There's uh, I know there's a one more Netflix movie we'll probably want to get to pretty soon. That's pretty horrific in its own right. But stay tuned. We're going to be turning these out a little bit faster these days. So a lot to talk about, a lot to watch. And hey, you guys, tell us what your favorite things are. And maybe we'll review that because there's a lot of things that you and I, we have a category and a fixation for, like for horror or comedy. But I'm sure we have a lot of blind spots. So maybe we can have a, a fan voted review. If you guys have something you want us to review, let us know. We'll add it to the queue. All um, right. But until next time, you can catch all of our existing work at malampictures.com. You can find more episodes of After the Act on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you typically listen to your podcasts. Um, if you like hearing the sounds of our voices and can't get enough of our content, go check out the Magic Conch podcast. It's on the same platforms. It's also on the Malin Pictures website where we just talk about bullshit with a SpongeBob context. A favorite pastime, really. And if you want to see us be really great, not really, at games, we have a Twitch channel and a YouTube channel where we play video games at Malin Pictures. So all the things to keep you guys entertained. Until next time, stay classy, my friends. And let us know if you want a balloon. Peace.